0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
1: Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open today uh, to Revelation chapter 6 probably need to spend a little bit of time uh, before we get into this section talking about the relationship between uh, these seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. Sometimes when you read Revelation, it it feels kind of circular. Uh, I have many times started to read Revelation and you get into it and then you you think you've got it figured out and then you get into the next series of visions and you can't figure out how this all goes together. And... uh, Scholars spend a lot of time talking about that and thinking about that. There are a couple schools of thought. Uh, one school of thought, I suppose, would be to think of them as serial or consecutive, meaning that, that they, they kind of stack up end to end, like train uh, cars on a train that you you work your way through the seven seals and then after the last seal, you you begin working your way through trumpets and after the, the, the problem with that approach, though, is that each of these series, Uh, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, seems to have an end, uh, seems to have the same end. And so you would almost have to have Christ returning triumphantly in judgment three different times uh, to to read it that way. And that leads many, I, I think I would say most scholars, to actually see these as in some way overlapping, meaning they're telling the same story in some way three different times. Uh, some, some folks refer to it as progressive parallelism. So maybe think of it this way. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you're my age or, or older, you probably remember when in Sunday school class and in school, they used to use uh, overhead transparencies, overhead projectors. And they had those uh, transparency films. And so you could put, it was a you know, see-through piece of plastic that you could put on a bright light and it would then take whatever you're writing on the transparency, it would uh, show it up on the screen. And, and so think of it this way, think of each of these visions as like a, a transparency film with some color, some detail, some imagery, and then they're laid on top of each other so that the entire picture has added detail each time we go through. And, and think of maybe the title for the painting itself, the image itself, as being the entire period between the two comings of Christ. And and so they're all covering the same time period from the uh, the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, but they're they're telling it from different angles, filling in details where where the others are absent. Maybe focusing in as you get further along on the end part, but but again, all fitting between those two frames, the first and second coming of Christ. And I, I think that makes much more sense. So so maybe think of them as they're all right hand anchored. If you think think of each story as moving. From the left hand to the right hand, meaning from the first coming of Christ on the left side to the second coming of Christ on the right side, they you can stick a tack on the right side and anchor them together because they all have that same sort of climactic ending. But they start at, at different points, and I think we'll see as we get into the seals. The seals start furthest back; they start all the way back from Pentecost, all the way back from the. Really, they cover the entire period from the first coming to the second coming, and then the trumpets and bowls are shaded a little more to the right-hand side. So in general, I think most scholars, and I think rightly so, refer to this as some sort of progressive parallelism. All right, let's get into it in general. Uh, let's let's start reading at verse 1, and uh, and we'll cover the first seal, and then we'll say something about the use of horse imagery in general, but let's start reading at verse 1. Now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, I will tell you this. Of all the, uh, the horses, the four horses... The, the real only argument has to do with this first white horse. Uh, some commentators think that maybe this white horse represents Jesus, because, of course, Jesus does reappear in chapter 19 on a white horse. But I don't think there's much uh, symbolism to be found in the color necessarily. And, of course, we want to remember that the colors are nowhere interpreted, so we don't want to rest our, our entire interpretation on the colors. It would be odd, I think, uh, if this were to be understood as Jesus. Uh, it would be odd in the book of Revelation for Jesus to be understood as one of four angels. Uh, Jesus is not one of four anything in the book of Revelation. He he is unique in his authority and majesty. So right away, I have a hard time with that idea um, just because I can't see Jesus as one of four of anything. And that doesn't really fit the theme. These are all, in essence, agents of tribulation and destruction on the earth, and so uh, it would be odd if the first horse was good and then the following three were bad. That would be a little disjointed. Uh, so I don't think that's the best interpretation. Generally speaking, and again, I think most scholars have understood this first horseman as representing the rise of empires. Uh, the emperor rode on a white horse. The white horse sometimes was a symbol of imperial majesty. And and so I, I think our best parallel here would be Matthew 24, uh, or verse 7 to 8, where it says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. It goes on to say there'll be famine and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So let's talk about these first four horsemen in general. Uh, I think that if we're helped out by the Olivet Discourse, that bit I just read from Matthew 24, Uh, I think it's probably best to see these first four horsemen as in some way preliminary. They're table setters. The, The imagery comes from Zechariah chapter 1 verses 7 to 11 and Zechariah 6, 1 to 8, where they represent God's active intervention in geopolitical affairs. So I think how we should see these four horsemen in general is we should see them as God's active intervention in global affairs to position people, to shake the, to rattle the human cage, as it were, to humble human pride, as it were, and to position people so as to put saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's how we should understand them. Now, again, just to be clear, there's nothing lost if you decide to go with the minority viewpoint and see the first white horse as representing the triumph of the gospel, as some, some see it, because In fact, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus does say in verse 14, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So absolutely, there is a sense in which we can understand this entire time period between the first and second comings of Christ as a time of gospel spreading and and progressive triumph. I think that's true. I just don't think that's the point in this text. So I think it's a case of right point wrong text. I think, I think this white horse represents the rise and fall of empires. All right, let's, let's move on to the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So again, most commentators have understood this to refer to civil war and societal strife. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So most commentators understood this third horse to represent mass inflation and uh, a famine that results from that. So inflation and famine. And certainly, I mean, if you know your history and you remember after World War I and the disastrous, disastrous Treaty of Versailles, massive inflation had a lot to do with the rise of the Third Reich. And, and it can be very destabilizing. The, the numbers here are quite remarkable. It, it's basically saying it would take a whole day's wage to buy a loaf of bread. Well, imagine how destabilizing it would be to the economy if it was $100 for a loaf of bread. Obviously, that would create great disruption. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, most commentators have understood this this last horse, this pale horse, to represent disease and death. The the Greek word there that's translated pale is chloros, uh, from which we get our English word chloroform. That's a hospital word, right? That's a word associated with sickness and death, even in our culture, in our language. So I think we're on good ground here. So what I think we're seeing is God exercising providential control over the whole earth through these various preliminaries, through rising and falling of empires, through civil war and societal stress, through uh, famine, through economic upheavals, and through plagues and disease and death. God is positioning people. He's shaking the human cage and positioning people to put faith in Christ. Now, when we get to verse 9 and the fifth seal, there's a change of perspective. Listen to this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, so now we're up in heaven, not down on the earth, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is actually a fairly important passage. Uh, What it seems to be saying, let's deal with it in its immediate context, what it seems to be saying is if we're right in understanding these first four horses as preliminaries or as Jesus refers to them in the Olivet Discourse, as the labor pains, the pangs of labor that open the birth canal, as it were, to make way for the coming of the kingdom of God, if we're right, and what we're seeing in this fifth seal is that all throughout that time period, the saints are being gathered into heaven and their souls are hovering around the throne of God. Now, here's why I say this is important. Pastorally speaking, uh, when, a, when a family loses a child, for example, very often they'll ask me in my office, where is my child right now? And and this is where you take them. You take them to this passage and you say, right now, the Spirit the soul of your child is hovering around the throne of God. It is Your, your child is being comforted. Your child is being clothed in some sort of a, a temporary clothing. He, he doesn't have yet his glorified body. We know we don't get our glorified bodies until Christ returns. But he's clothed. He's not naked. He's not a disembodied soul. He's in some way clothed. He is being comforted, and he is waiting a little longer. So that's a very important pastoral passage as well. All right, let's pick it up at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the heaven fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale and who can stand. So the sixth seal is generally understood by commentators as as the great tribulation, as the great day of wrath, or as some call it, as Satan's little season. And the content that we find here in this seal is remarkably parallel to what you find in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 25. That's, again, that's in the Olivet Discourse. It's also parallel to what you find in the Old Testament in Isaiah 24 4 to 24. Now, you notice that chapter 6 ends before we get to the seventh seal. There's another interlude in the next chapter in which we get a picture of the full number now of the redeemed up in heaven before we open the seventh seal. And then when we open the seventh seal, we discover that inside the seventh seal are seven trumpets. This is like cat in the hat, right? He takes off his hat and there's several more little cats inside. That's the idea. The seven trumpets are a zoomed-in telling Of the seventh seal. That's what we mean by progressive parallelism. They're covering the same ground but adding additional detail. So the bottom line is this God is shaking the tree, God is humbling humankind. He is making careful and judicious use of all manner of trials and tribulation in order to give humanity every opportunity to put saving faith in Christ. This is is what the book of Job says in chapter 36, Job 36. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. This is who God is. This is how God does. Old Testament and new. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.